0: Thank you for listening to the sermons here at Ascension Lutheran Church. Our worship services happen on Sunday mornings. 8.30 is our traditional worship service, and 10.30 is our contemporary worship service. We'd love to see you on a Sunday morning. You can visit us also on our website at www.alcrpv.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Here we are um, in the book of Revelation, and it's important while we are in this book, for us to place ourselves um, in the book. Because it's easy to get confused when you um, come to this kind of book. And so you need to say, okay, where are we? And I've said this a couple of times, but it's important that we have three cycles of seven, okay? So we have one, we have two, and then we have an interlude... And then we have our third cycle of seven. Our first cycle of seven were the seals. Our second cycle of seven was the trumpets. Then we have our interlude. And then our last cycle of seven is the bowls. This is the basic breakdown of the book of Revelation, the the chunk, the largest chunk of it. These three cycles all move us from the ascension of Jesus... So that's an arrow going up to the judgment seats of Christ. And this is where I get to draw my wonderful Jesus on a on a uh, throne. And he's wearing, oh, where's my yellow? There it is. He's wearing a crown. Okay. So don't let the good art distract you. We are in the section right here of the trumpets. And even more important, you will have noticed that between the 6th and 7th seal, there is an interlude. There is a pause in the action between the 6th and 7th seal. There is also a pause between the 6th and 7th trumpet. When we talked about this in the seals, I pointed out that if you look at the number of words given... There's about I think it was 451 words for the six seals. So 451 words. Then for the interlude there was 417 words just for the interlude. And now we come to the trumpets and in the trumpets there's 900 I think and 11 words for the six trumpets and there's 890 words for the interlude. So he burns through six seals pretty quickly. And then he slows down. And even if you remember more, it goes, well, here's the first writer. There's the second writer. Here's the third writer. And then he goes, now let me tell you about the 144,000 sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. 12,000 from the tribe. 12,000 from the tribe. And he slows down. And there's a reason for him slowing down. The reason is that the interludes are the focus You see, our temptation, because the seals are so vivid, and they kind of freak us out, right? There was a rider named Death. Whoa. You know, if you talk to people about the book of Revelation, they may come up with the four horsemen pretty easily. Because they go, yeah, I remember that. There's the, the white rider, and then there's the warfare rider, and the economic rider, and the death rider. That's some crazy business. And where John wants us to do Is he wants us to see the chaos that's around us. Because remember, these seals are being broken now. The trumpets are being broken or being blown now. This is going on. But in the midst of it, he wants you to focus on the fact that he knows you. So in the first interlude, 144,000 were sealed. The whole church of God was sealed. I know you, I know who you are. Then in the trumpets, we're going to see a mighty angel come. And then we're going to see him measure the temple and have two witnesses. I see you. I've measured you. I know where you stand. And my gospel's going to be preached. So, the interludes are the focus. They're the part that give us hope. Now, if those are the interludes between the seals and the trumpets, I told you that this third line is a book interlude. How important do you think that interlude is? If he gives a number of chapters to this next image, how important do you think it is that we see that image for what it is? So, where are we then? That's the question. We are right here. We are in the interlude of the trumpets. So what is God reminding us in the influence of the trumpets? Well, the first thing we see is we see this mighty angel. Now, I will give you the fact that this angel is confusing. This angel is confusing because this angel looks a lot like Jesus, right? Like Let's just read about him. Wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He held a little scroll open in his hand, setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This is a big angel, right? I mean, we're talking massive angel, skyscraper like angel, and he's wrapped in a cloud. He has a halo like a rainbow and his face is shining like the sun. Doesn't this make you want to say Jesus? I mean, it's just like, yeah, that must be Jesus, right? There's a problem. And here's the problem. When John sees the angel, how does he respond? Well, let's get there. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. What does John not do? He does not fall down and worship this angel. That's really important. In Revelation 1, as soon as the angel showed up on the scene, it was Jesus, John fell down like he was dead. Because when Jesus shows up, you have to worship. It's not you choose to worship. It's you have to worship. Remember the verse that we like to quote, that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even unbelievers will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because when he shows up, you fall down. There is no choice. John doesn't fall down. John goes, I'm about to write. I'm going to write what you say. Which points us back. And then you start kind of dissecting this angel. And you go, yeah, I don't think he is Jesus. One of the a good clues there is his face Shined like the sun, but when Jesus in Revelation 1 showed up, his whole, his whole appearance, everything about him, was shining like the sun. And so what they say is, this is probably a reflected glory off of, off of Jesus. That this was probably like Jesus' angel. Which, I mean, if this is Jesus' angel and he's like a big as a skyscraper, can you imagine when Jesus shows up? That's why you fall down and worship. And his face is like the sun. His face is not the sun. It's like the sun. You know, um, when I was in my undergraduate degree, one of my professors had this beautiful illustration about what a Christian is. And he told, he said, you know what a Christian is? All of us Christians in this room, you know what we are? We're like the moon. The moon does not have any power to give light in itself, right? The moon creates no light. The light that you see at night is only a reflected light off of the sun. When we are doing anything good, it is not because of the goodness of Scott. It's not because of my power or my abilities. If God does anything in this sermon, it's not because of what I've studied. It's because of reflected glory. Off Jesus, who is the source of light, off of me reflecting onto you. I mean, that's, that's what we are as Christians, right? We're moons. So you can go around and say, I'm just a big dust ball. I'm just a big dust ball reflecting the glory of God. You know what that does? It gives you freedom. You don't have to do the work. God will reflect his glory off of you. Just be the dust ball God made you to be. Right? I mean, how freeing is that? They're like, I don't have to, okay, okay, dust balls. Let's go and be dust balls together. And so, the most important part is is the end in eleven ten eleven when he says, Then he said to me, You must prophesy, prophesy, pros, prophesy again about many people and nations and languages and kings. Go and do it again. He's been recommissioned. So, he's been recommissioned to go and do it. And what has happened? He's told to eat a scroll couple times in scripture, people are told to eat scrolls. They swallow a scroll and um, have a wonderful book called eat this book by Eugene Peterson. And he talks about reading scripture like it becomes a part of us. You know, like I'm giving this sermon right now, right? Because of a meal I had a week ago, you know, maybe it was taco bell, right? I that's, that's how I have the energy to give this sermon, but I'm not sitting there going, yeah, the taco bell is giving me this energy." As we take scripture into ourselves, as you learn and as we learn together, then all of a sudden we start acting like Jesus because it's just coming out of us. We're not thinking, okay, I'm going to be like John 3 says right now. No, it just becomes out of us. So we eat scripture and eating scripture becomes sweet like honey on our lips, but it upsets our belly. Now, this is what scripture does. And it's interesting, isn't it? It's sweet like honey on your lips because when you taste it, it's the greatest thing ever. God loves you and he forgives you for all of the stuff you've done. No matter what you've done in your life, you have a God who on the cross died for you and resurrected for you. And there is nothing sweeter than that. Right? Amen? Amen. Thank you. But when it comes down and gets into your belly, it starts to irritate you. You know why? Because that God loves you too much to leave you there. And so you know what he's going to say? Okay, Scott, now this has to change about you. And I go, I don't want to change. I'm pretty good in my sin. In fact, I like the way I sin. It's comfortable. It feels good. And you know what God says? That part of you has to die. I don't want it to die. I want to stay that way. And then he goes, no. And he, come on. And he keeps calling me deeper and deeper and deeper. And you know what that's like? Bitterness. It sits in my stomach and I go, no, not that part, Jesus. Why did you have to do? No, he's calling me and he's making me holy. And that feels like bitterness. You know, as, as people leave and they say, oh, that was, you know, the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my whole life, Pastor Scott. I did that quite regularly. But um, <laughs> they... As they, as people leave, and the, really the compliment that I get, that I that I enjoy the most, or that I take with me the most, is two. Is when one, when people say, "Boy, you irritated me today." <laughs> really, truly, though, because that means that you listened, and that means you got it. That means no. Like I don't want that to be true, because if that's true, then things have to change. And the second one that I like is when people say, "I have to think about that." I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this whole thing. Thank you. I mean, truly. Those are compliments because then it's like, okay, you've you've irritated me enough. And this is what we do here together, guys, is that we, we grow and God calls us, which is why it's sweet going down because there's nothing greater than salvation, but it irritates us when it gets into us. And so then he says, measure the temple. And we're called to measure the temple. And um, the temple is, looks like this. Now this was Herod's temple, so this would have been the one that John would have been familiar with. Solomon's temple was a little bit different because what was interesting about Solomon's temple is that Solomon only had this part, okay? So Solomon had this part of the temple and Herod's temple, he added these outside gates. So in the temple, right here, this section right here, this is the part where the Holy of Holies is. That means that's the holiest part. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. The priest is only allowed to go in there one time a year. Then you had this court out here, which is where the sacrifices were made. Then you had the court of the women, or the court where people could go, and we all could gather. And then they have this whole section, which was called the Court of the Gentiles. So it was not necessarily people who were Israelites. That, this is the court out here where Jesus turned over tables because they were um, making money off of the people of God. That did not make Jesus happy. And so he turned over tables. Now, what does that mean? It means that the part that he is called to measure is the part in here where God's people are. And he is measuring the people of God, which what he's saying is this, I know where you are. In the midst of all of the chaos that's happening, I've measured you. I know where you are. Find comfort in that. My people aren't just around without my knowledge. I know them, and I've counted them, and I've sealed them. You see, the point of the measuring is to bring us hope. In the midst of everything that's happening, in the midst of all of the things I cannot understand, you know me. You've sealed me. And you've measured where I stand. That's why the interludes are important. Because what it's communicating to us is, I'm protected by this God. And after the measuring happens, we have these two witnesses stand up. And the two witnesses, they stand up and they start proclaiming the gospel. And they're called the two witnesses, the two prophets. They're out there proclaiming to the people of God. This, and not the people of God, just the people in general. This is how you are to live. These are the things you are to do. Let me tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about what my God has done for you. And what happens to these two witnesses? They get killed. Did you hear the the, um, gospel reading today from Luke? What happens to us? He tells you, you're going to go out. You're going to be put on trial. When you're put on trial, I will give you the words. Some of you will be killed, but I know you, and I'm with you. You see, our job as the church is to irritate the world with the love and grace of the gospel. Our job is to irritate the world with the great love that God has for the people and to constantly remind them of that great love. I found this quote that I think is beautiful. A prophet lets people know who God is and what he is like, what he says and what he is doing. A prophet wakes us up from our sleepy complacency so that we see the great and stunning drama that is our existence and then pushes us onto the stage playing our parts whether we think we are ready or not. A prophet angers us by rejecting our euphemisms and ripping off our disguises, then dragging our heartless attitudes and selfish motives out into the open where everyone sees them for what they are. A prophet makes everything and everyone seem significant and important. Important because God made it, or him, or her. A prophet makes it difficult to continue with the sloppy Or selfish life. You know who the prophet to the people of this world are or is? It's us. We are the two witnesses. We are the hope of the world. Preaching to them the good news of the gospel. Do you see what your call is? They're to let people know who God is and what he is like. You're to wake up the people around you from sleepy complacency. You're to anger the world because they reject the euphemisms and ripping off of disguises. You're to make everything and everyone seem significant and important because God made it or him or her. This is our job, friends. This is what we are called to do. You know, we've had... Of rough four weeks, haven't we, as a nation? Four weeks ago, we were awoken on Sunday morning to the news of 50 people injured or killed at a nightclub in Orlando. We've seen two videos of police violence, and we've seen videos of a man shooting police officers in Dallas. And it causes us causes me, I won't put it on you, it causes me to wonder what I am to do as a Christian and what I'm to do as part of God's church. And as I've been reflecting and thinking about this question, my thoughts turn to the cross and they turn to Rome's violence and our Savior who went to the cross And took the violence of the world upon himself. But refused to respond violently. Believing that in his faithfulness to God the Father. God would resurrect him. And the last word would not be violence. But the last word would be resurrection. I believe it is our call as the church to walk into places and to be this prophet, to be the one who brings with us a cross and reminds the world of its lie that it constantly believes, that violence suppresses violence, that all we need to do is one more violent act and then we'll finally be done and peace will come. It is the lie that started with Cain and Abel and continues to this day. The cross breaks that lie. And in the midst of that lie, the cross says we have a God who received the violence of the world and did not respond violently. And I hope that as we study the book of Revelation, you have understood the power of that God. That that God has the power to throw down bolts of lightning, earthquakes, destroy a third of the earth, destroy a third of the mankind. That is the God who is on our side, who died on a cross, and who was resurrected from the dead. And so in the midst of a world we don't understand, this world desperately needs the church to be saying things like what's on the screen in front of you. The world needs another option. And if we as Christians aren't giving the world another option, they are never going to find it. And so we show up and we tell them about a crucified Savior. And we tell them about a savior who did not allow the lie of violence, oppressing violence to define his actions, but instead believed in faithfulness to God and that God would have the last word and God raised him from the dead. And so we preach that. You know what's going to happen? It's going to be bitter. There are going to be people in this world who do not like that answer. Who do not like what God has in store for that. And so what do we do? We stay faithful to the message. and we hear the words of Jesus, I'll give you the words at the right time. I will give you the words for your defense. Because we are the two witnesses. We are the church. We're the ones that God has marked off and he knows us. We're the ones that God has sealed. If we don't give the world another option, another way to live... No one will. Just look at those words again from Eugene Peterson. A prophet makes everything and everyone seem significant and important. Important because God made it or him or her. A prophet makes it difficult to continue with a sloppy or selfish life. These are words I want to be known for. These are words I want to be known by that you are important because God has made you. Your enemy is important because God made them. And so we preach a Christ crucified and resurrected. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship, to lift our hands in holy praise. Lord, teach us what it is to be called your children. Teach us what it is to be your prophet into this world. Help us to not be satisfied with easy answers, but help us to be willing to go farther than we ever thought possible, to spread your gospel, and to tell the world about your goodness. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.